Welcome to Invasion of the Potty People, your monthly dive into all the latest goings on in the world of horror. We'll be bringing you all the news that's exciting us, the new horror releases we think you should check out, and a host of other treats. And this episode, a first for us, we have an interview with a proper big film director, someone who's made a film, has come on and talked to me about their film, and I'm very excited if you hear this interview. We've got a trio of hosts this week. First up, we've got... Hello. This is Vincent. I uh, I took a turn and it brought me here. Was it a wrong turn? I guess we'll find out. And next to him is... This is James, and hearing we have a big Hollywood director interview on this episode, I suppose I should act professional. But fuck that! I'm staying the same! And as always, I'm trying to corral them into giving good opinions and lots of things you can use. It's me, Russell. So, before we get into the horror, because we are in the middle of a lockdown and a pandemic and all this other stuff, I like to know how people are doing. Me, I'm I'm alright. Beyond the news being unmitigatingly bleak this week. Uh, my daughter's back at school. I'm watching plenty of amazing comedy. Uh, there's still Taskmasters I have to catch up on, so that's great. I have one season left, and next week when we're recording this, there'll be another series of Taskmasters to dive into, which will be great. And I've been watching a lot of a show called Superstore, which is on Netflix, and it's very easy to watch and very charming and has a nice office vibe to it that I, I really enjoyed. Vincent, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing all right. Um, you say that it's been all bad news this week. I mean, I would say the news of Piers Morgan leaving Good Morning Britain doesn't necessarily count. Hey! Yeah, exactly. Um, I've rediscovered the deeply soothing or should that be soporific effect of doing mandatory training as a new employee going through that uh, those online courses on gdpr and diversity and discrimination and unconscious bias and fire safety now i'm not saying this sort of training is not important but i do find it slightly ironic to be doing fire safety awareness when i'm working from home and I don't even know what the buildings I would otherwise be working in look like. <laughs> so I'll probably have to take a refresher course if and when I actually get to go into the offices of where I work. <laughs> but hey, such is the world we live in. James, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm eagerly anticipating uh, next week when I get to partake in BFI Flair, a little film festival specifically catered to lgbtq films so i'm excited to see what they offer me other than that it's day in day out of the usual stuff but i've rediscovered my love for futurama which is a wonderful little creation from matt groening and if you've always thought oh yeah but it's not the simpsons then you're in luck because it's it's got all that great humor the simpsons had and it doesn't have even more seasons of crap stuff which outweigh the good stuff. And it has a funny alcoholic robot, which is always my shiny metal ass. <laughs> What's your favourite Futurama episode? You two. Ooh. Possibly okay, the first one that came to mind, um, perhaps because James did his uh um <clears throat> Zoidberg impression is the episode that in, takes place on Zoidberg's home planet um, when uh, he goes back there to mate and 
Fry uh, and the woman and the female he's supposed to mate with falls for Fry instead because he actually listens to her. I think it is, will forever epit- um, immortalize the importance of saying, "Well, I got up and I had a piece of toast." <laughs> <laughs> so that'll that's certainly a favorite. James, what's your pick? Oh, I don't know. My absolute pick. I'm only a bit through the first season at the moment, but one I adored was the honking which is the episode, werewolf-style episode, where Bender gets turned into a were-car and ends up hunting down, theorised to hunt down his best friend, which is supposed to be Fry, but Fry gets a bit jealous when he goes for Leela instead. And that was a fun romp. Kind of a combination of werewolf story with Christine, isn't it? Yes, and it has a bit of a ghost story in the beginning with the ghost robot. Yeah. It's a great one for horror fans, that one. Oh, yeah. I think my, well, I have probably two picks it could be. One is the one where Fry goes back in time and meets his grandfather and grandmother. And if you haven't seen it, James, <laughs> oh, I know. But, it's funny. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> and the one is the one that covers his dog. And that's there because it shows that the show can be utterly tragic at times. Oh, I'm going to get weepy on this episode. Poor Seymour. <laughs> so we all seem all right right now, which is, is good. Uh, so it's probably a good time to segue into what are the stuff that we think you should seek out this week. So each episode we pick something old, something new, and something not a movie that you can go off and uh, get your teeth into. Horror that we think is really exciting and great and you should seek out. Uh, James, what are you going to pick this week? Okay, for my something new, I'm going to go for a film which played at Fright Fest Halloween uh, just gone, and it was a standout favourite of mine, which is now available to rent. It's Benny Loves You. If you've not heard of the story, oh, you're in for a ride. The story follows Jack, this 35-year-old man who's coasting through life. He suffers from arrested development, he's still living with his parents, and he has no drive to do better at his job or dress professionally or even move out. Then his parents meet an untimely, unfortunate demise, and he's forced, which forces him to grow up. So he has to sell his family home and start a new life. And his he begins to go through this by cleaning out the family belongings. Included among this is his beloved childhood bear, Benny, and it's this adorable little orange bear who's just the sweetest little thing. And then he springs to life with the intention of protecting Jack however possible. And it's clear that the most popular solution he finds is murder. Now, you have Jack, played by Carl Holt, who is the writer and director of this film, doing a good job acting opposite Benny, who is the most adorable serial killer you'll ever see on film. Sorry, Jason. It's true. And... It's a charming mixture that has a macabre sense of humour and with this relatable tale about growing up. Think if Toy Story 3 was mixed with a slasher film. This would be the bonkers end result and I encourage everyone to watch it if you want a fun time. Kind of sounds like Child's Play crossed with uh, Ted, the Seth MacFarlane movie. That's that. Less dick jokes, but that is appropriate. And for my something old, I'm going back to the ripe old year of 2012 for Richard Bates Jr.'s directorial debut, Excision. And the story follows Pauline, this disturbed teen who 
gets this great enjoyment out of these bloody fantasies we keep seeing her having, but she dreams of becoming a great surgeon. Uh, at the heart of it all, she just wants to earn the approval of her mother, who and they're constantly at odds, and Pauline is just ready to seek her mother's approval with and go to any extremes to get it. And it's a it's a disastrous relationship. It's not the most healthy one, but it's key to the film and it's fleshed out so well by both Anna Lynn McCord and Tracy Lords. And they never feel like caricatures or cartoonish. They feel like real people trying to navigate through life and relationships, but they have difficulty communicating. And what you got around them is this horrific feature, which is is an impressive marriage of humour and horror. But by the end of it, the fantasy and reality all comes together, and nobody's laughing then. You're just haunted by what you've seen. It's a wonderful little film, which I don't think got enough recognition. And it's available to stream on Amazon Prime, so I'd definitely say check it out. It's only about 82 minutes or so. And for my something not a film, I'm going to go with Jamie Russell's expansive tome entitled Book of the Dead, The Complete History of Zombie Cinema. Now, this is a large book which charts an in-depth history of the zombie subgenre, and it begins with the origins of the zombie myth and how it's rooted in real life and ancient history, up to how the zombies have made their way into Hollywood. And the book takes the time to explore the many different entries into the subgenre, as well as the real-world events which has informed such films, and how these ghouls have evolved since their humble origins to become what we know of nowadays. And what they do is chart this compelling evolution of these creatures, and it's fascinating to read how much they've changed throughout all these different iterations from like the Atomic Age and from the original days where uh, let's say race wasn't a great example of what cinema could do, or at least how it hand, how it was handled. Now, the version I read was unfortunately revised up till 2014, so ends on a pretty downbeat note. And I'm not sure if there's a more recent version, because if it's a shame if there isn't, as the book ends up missing out on the inventive roots the genre has managed to take in those years such as films like One Cut of the Dead, The Girl with All the Gifts, and especially Train to Busan. And if they released a revised edition like that, I would be very interested in exploring, see what they had to say over those past few years, and how the zombies have changed in that time. It also carries an interesting interview with the late George A. Romero, as well as this catalogue of every zombie film that was made up to the point it was released, complete with a capsule review of each one. So. If you're interested in zombies, if you're a fan, and if you want to know more, I'd really recommend this book. I got it from a, a HMV for like six quid or something ages ago. So hopefully, maybe they'll have some on the website. I don't know, but I'd really recommend you re- giving this read. That sounds like a great read. That sounds really interesting. Uh, so I'll do my picks of the month so first up my something old so we discussed last week the arrival of of star on disney plus and i've watched a cacophony of films that i don't think are very disney but i've been great fun so if james hadn't discussed it last month i'd probably be talking about ravenous right now because i watched that the other day and it was 
bonkersly good. It was it was violent, funny, lots of weird choices that work. It has a strange soundtrack and has this sense of humor that's very odd. So I had fun with that. I also watched Commando, which, while not a horror film, is a lot of fun. I'd never seen that before. But my pick is Jennifer's Body. So I remember this coming out in 2009, and I for my sins, ignored it because the press around it was not very favorable and it, it, it built up a reputation that horror fans were quite hostile to it. And now is the perfect time to reframe that because I watched it and it's really interesting and it's really enjoyable and it says a lot of stuff that I think is really interesting for a teen horror. So it's basically the story of a girl whose best friend is Jennifer and she gets possessed by a succubus and starts killing off her male classmates. And she gets possessed because a band go through a satanic ritual to gain success and wealth and fame, and she is their sacrifice. And it's it's a bit odd. It's a bit of an odd film. It's uh, funny and also dark and weird. It's written by Diablo Cody, who wrote the likes of Juno, Young Adult, and various other films. It's directed by Karen uh, Kasama, who also did The Invitation, which is perhaps one of the best horrors of the last 10 years. And it stars the likes of Megan Fox, Amanda Seyfried, Adam Brody. Lots of recognisable teen faces are in this. And I think it kind of got sucked into this whole hostility around Megan Fox. And if you've watched the Framing Britney Spears documentary like I have, you'll understand that there should be a sort of reframing of how we treated female celebrities at the time because really the press was terrible to them and I think we can start by all watching Jennifer's Body and all having a good time with it because it's really fun and also a really interesting exploration of uh, the occult in horror and I really liked it and I really liked what it was doing. Uh, My next pick, my something new, so this weekend, I caught one film through Fright Fest, uh, Glasgow. I didn't catch the film that probably we can agree shouldn't have played. We won't talk about it. It's been talked about enough. I instead caught Cody Callahan's Vicious Fun, which was exactly that. But the film of his that I want to talk about is the film we made before this that's coming out in April. It's called The Oak Room, and it is probably the one of the best films I saw at a film festival last year. It is this wonderfully dark, intense noir that's basically about people walking into bars and telling stories. And that's all it is. And it has this incredible atmosphere. And it almost, for me, feels like a variant of what Pulp Fiction would be if it was quieter and smaller and it was about people just having conversations. And it all builds this sort of ominous ending that I won't spoil, but it just builds up and up this sense of foreboding that I I found intoxicating. So that's coming out for uh, rental on April the 26th. And I really, really think you should all check it out. It's 90 minutes long. It's short, it's snappy, and it brims with atmosphere in a way that I think is wonderful. And my Something Not a Movie, which is a TV show that I started today, and I know I'm going to be very obsessed with this TV show, it's called The Terror. This is a, a supernatural, supernatural semi-historical horror anthology series. And we have the first series, which is about these two boats that in real life went missing and disappeared and were never found again whilst trying to get through the 
Arctic, so there was a route between us and the Americas, and it is this very classy creep fest. There's great actors in it. There's the likes of um, Jared Harris and uh, Tobias Menzies and many other recognisable faces in it, and they all give cracking performances, and it, it, it oozes class. But at the same time, it's also a spook fest. It's also a horror. So you can have fun with it. And it's just, uh, I admire this TV show for having a budget for what is a horror story. And it shows where horror has come in the last decade or so that these, this classy TV show will exist alongside several other really classy TV shows that have come out from the likes of Netflix. And there's stuff on Amazon and other platforms. And also there's also something like Servant on Apple TV, which I've not watched, but I will watch because that again seems like it's brimming with class. And I, I very much appreciate that horror can be a bit trashy and a bit fun, but also can have amazing actors in and be classy and a period piece that's just really fun to watch. So those, those are my free picks for the month. Vincent, what are your picks? Well, I'm going to um, do, uh, invert the order slightly <clears throat> and start with my something new. The new film I'm going to talk about is Wrong Turn. Wrong Turn, released 2021, currently available um, to rent on Amazon. Um, and I'm going to do a slight variation um, because in the case of Wrong Turn, what I recommend is that you avoid it like the plague. Now, I may go off on one here, but Wrong Turn 2021 is a film which demonstrates that more can be very less. As the name implies, it is related to the earlier uh, franchise, indeed, called Wrong Turn, which by and large were fairly compact films. In the case of this new film, it runs out of steam after 25 minutes, and then there's another 80 minutes to go after that, which will likely test the patience of even the most devoted horror fan. There are attempts at presenting problematic social attitudes, and that might be effective if more was made of them, but bigotry is appear, appears too cursorily to make any effective display of prejudice. There's a disruption to the narrative chronology, which is a massive problem. We start after the principal action, so we know that when we meet a bunch of young people, they're going to meet with misfortune, so that the guy we see at the beginning of the film who's looking for them is going to come looking for them. So there's kind of a loss of tension there. Now, wrong turn, I think, throughout the history of the franchise, it taps into the familiar folk horror premise of urbanites encountering the threat of the rural, the primitive, the untamed. It's the Wicker Man, it's Witchfinder General, it's the um, it's films that we've discussed more recently. So it's kind of impressive. Um, it's something like The Witch or The Blair Witch Project. It is impressive, I think, therefore, that director Mike P. Nelson manages to mess everything up so effectively. There are multiple whip pans that provide glimpses of the undergrowth where something moves out of sight, and this provokes fear for about three seconds, and yet this device is continually used. There's fast handheld footage with no semblance of atmosphere. There are repeated shots of our young hero saying, we need to get the fuck off this mountain, and they all speak with that emphasis which is sort of sweet. 
And the overall result is that there is more immersion to be found in the recent charming drama about excavation, The Dig, than you would find in this, uh, one would hope, somewhat more literal horror film. There is clumsy and contradictory world building. You know, people who are being lost and hunted in the woods, fine, I'm down with that. But when you expand into weird, isolated, counterculture bullshit, I'm like, what the hell? There is, for a horror film that does involve people getting, you know, technically brutally killed, there's some bodily dismemberment and eye gouging, which, you know, I enjoy eye gouging as much as the next person, but there is no sense of pain or suffering and therefore no reason to care because of grand eloquence and pontificating which smothers any visceral terror. So any suggestions of social or political commentary go the same way as tension and fear as the final act wanders and wibbles like a lost child, but without the panic. And here's the worst thing. The worst thing is, I noticed throughout this movie that these characters have got really nice hair. Now, this totally dispels any sense of untamed nature or wildness. And if you're noticing that the bad guys appear to have access to decent conditioner, something is going badly wrong. So to sum up, Wrong Turn is wrong-headed in every possible way, with an overly convoluted plot, incoherent themes, reiterative dialogue, garish visual style, and distracting hair. To the extent that when a character in the movie mentions a movie with inbred cannibals, I found myself wishing for more of that, which is not something you wish for every day. Funnily enough, I then, for my something old, watched Wrong Turn from 2003. Now, I saw Wrong Turn back in 2003, and I found it tense and gruesome. I watched it again the other night in preparation for today's recording, and I found it tense and gruesome. It is the type of film that is quite beautiful in its simplicity. You've got a random encounter. People get lost. Gory shit goes down. There are some key moments of visceral terror, such as somebody getting clumsily garroted with razor wire, and then you see the aftermath. There are bodies sliced up. There are people punctured with arrows. And perhaps the peak gore moment that I remembered very well from 18 years ago and then got to enjoy all over again is when there's an axe blow that splits a head in two. Um, The sort of blow that it would sever the head, except it didn't just go through the neck. It went through the head and the rest of the body falls away. That's the kind of gore I want. And along the way, you've got an archetypal band of young people expressing consternation and palpable fear. It's got atmosphere and jump scares galore, and that is how you blend Deliverance and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre into a taut and effectively nasty exploitation folk horror. And on a related note, my I've only, I've only sort of now realised that my non-film choice kind of fits in with what we're talking uh, with with what I've been talking about because my non-film choice is a novel a novel called The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones now the similarity this has to Wrong Turn and Wrong Turn is it is another um horror tale set kind of in a wilderness where it's about people encountering something way out of their con- of their control unlike Wrong Turn um The Only Good Indians is supernatural. It's a supernatural horror novel, and it takes the established trope of a vengeful spirit, um, something like, say, The Ring or The Grudge, but it places this in an indigenous American context. Um, What it utilises is the myth of the elk-head woman. 
It's an existing myth. Google it, people. It's pretty interesting. Now, I don't. I would say I don't remember the last time I saw a horror film that involved Indigenous Americans, except I do. It was a film I saw last year called Blood Quantum, which was a zombie film, um, a recent release, obviously, so it wouldn't be in the Book of the Dead mentioned earlier. Um, but it is a zombie film set specifically in and around a, a an Indigenous American uh, reservation. Um, and that was, but I don't remember the um, Indigenous American story I encountered prior to that. There was an effect, there was a horror tale. Um, so it's quite unusual for me, at least, to and to come across this type of story relating to this sort of community. Now, there are some familiar tropes, such as taking place on a reservation, um, a sweat lodge, and the novel does highlight the social deprivation that Indigenous Americans experience, um, because Indigenous Americans are one of the most underprivileged um, groups in North America in terms of poverty, in terms of unemployment, in terms of um, <clears throat> uh, drug and alcohol problems and homelessness. Um, now, it's worth noting that the term Indigenous Americans is itself problematic because it places a diverse range of peoples under one umbrella term. And the novel actually acknowledges this, as the author Stephen Graham Jones, he refers in the narrative to Blackfeet and Crow, and also the term Indian. Now, there are, also, there are some surprising elements. And here's the most surprising for me. Um, the book is creepy, and it's, es and it's got escalating horror, and in some places, it's seriously gory. But really surprising is it got me interested in basketball. I have no interest in sports, but it's in, so it's an impressive work of art that makes sport dramatic to me. I remember um, in the film Silver Linings Playbook, I was interested in the American football angle. In Dennis Lehane's novel, The Given Day, baseball was made very interesting to me. And in The Only Good Indians, basketball becomes a thrilling set piece. So definitely the most dramatic basketball I've ever read. The climax of the novel becomes increasingly cinematic, and I'd really love to see a film adaptation preferably produced by Indigenous American filmmakers. Um, so, yeah, it involves this myth of the elk-head woman pursuing these um, men who have committed a sin. Um, you know the drill. Um, committed this sin and they're going to and they're going to pay for it on account of this elk-head woman. It's got a lot of interesting things to say about race, as well, sorry, race and class and also gender. I think it's gender politics, very interesting. Um, plus, it's also going to make you look at, I think, at air fans, maybe, um, ceiling fans, as well as basketball courts, maybe with a little more trepidation. So that is my non-film recommendation, Stephen Graham Jones's novel, The Only Good Indians. Cool. Uh, James, have you seen any of the wrong turn films? I have seen the reboot and the original. And while I wasn't a fan of the reboot, I, by default, I would take it over the original because I really didn't like the original. Uh, hot take? I think that it's this really interesting uh, two films in that there's all these ideas being shoved into the new one and i found some of them interesting some of them not i didn't much care for the first half and i thought the second half uh, was interesting because it kept changing what it was doing i don't know if that's it. i just found it quite interesting to watch not necessarily that it's a good bit of filmmaking whereas i thought that the original doesn't have many ideas but it is wonderfully efficient at what it does it just sets out to kill off a group of uh young adults and it does it aggressively and efficiently so 
I think they're very interesting to compare and contrast because I don't know why the new one is called Wrong Turn because it's it doesn't take much from the old one. I thought it was interesting. Yeah, the Wrong Turn in the in the re, in the new one is very, is like everything else in it, terribly convoluted. Um, as you know, we've got our young adults on this hike, and it's like, hey, what if we went off the path to look for something? And you're like, what really? Whereas at least in the original, it's a matter of, hmm, well, there's this road um, that might get me around this traffic jam. Let's give that a go. And I thought that it's, again, it's simplicity. Um, and I think the term you use there, Russell, is absolutely right. It's efficient. Um, and yeah, that's what I would say about uh, that. That's what I think is the key difference between the two. One is efficient. The other is cumbersome. But anyone who goes up there, what is this place? They don't come back. So there are our picks of the month. We've got some films for you to watch. We've got a TV show and some books. And if you want to check out the new Wrong Turn, that's up to you. I thought it was watchable, and I kind of wish that Ari Aster had never made Midsummer. And I'll leave it at that because he might have ruined horror anyway um next up we have our first ever interview Way! and we have on the director christopher smith who has in the past directed the likes of creep severance severance triangle black death and a few non-horrors but we re- we're most excited about those horrors because some of them at least were like big films of their time i remember watching severance in a pretty packed cinema uh, i remember renting creep on dvd and I have watched Triangle recently, and Triangle is a very effective film for what lockdown feels like. And so he sat down to me for 15 minutes to chat about his return to the horror scene. And he is returning with a spooky tale of things going bump in the night called The Banishing, which played at uh, last October's Fright Fest and is going to be out soon on release. So I sat down with him and dived into his career and this new release. So um, I... I really liked your film. It was really fun and atmospheric and really good uh, horror. Um, I wondered if you could tell us a bit about, um, which sort of introduce us to the film first. Yeah, so the film is set in the 19, uh, sort of mid 1930s. It's the rise of fascism is spreading across the world. Uh, uh, a young single mother has recently married for convenience, a, a vicar and has moved in with him. The relationship is not even consummated, let alone fully you know has a very it's built on a very thin foundation and a convenience and they move into what is essentially you think and is uh, to some extent a haunted house and it's how the relationship and the house brings out sides of them and sort of bring brings up buried truths and buried buried ghosts if you like both both real and unreal uh, yeah, and it's about how this family is affected by this. So it's kind of like a traditional ghost story, but for me, all of the best ghost stories delve into the characters' psychology and their own fears. I think they're the most successful ones. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. The film plays around with some of the tropes of the ghost movie and, and has a few surprises in it, telling us some stuff in it that that feels quite unique to it, like, particularly like the... Uh, late 30s setting and how important that is for the story itself. Um, I wondered how you felt about approaching this particular horror subgenre. 
Yeah, I just, um, I, I hadn't done a haunted house movie. And when I read the script originally, it, it was much more so of a traditional one in a good way. And we've kept 90% of that stuff as, it, you know, in the sense of how it was. I, you know, I'm not a believer in, in I mean, I, I believe all, all ghost stories, ghosts are buried within you. Uh, they're in, in your psyche and your, you know, in your demons that you create, you, you know, you lock people away in a room in self, in self confinement and solitary confinement, the walls start to come in on you. You eventually go crazy, go nuts, you know, and, and it's how you go nuts in that environment, I think is what, what you see play out in all of these stories. And people say to me, have you ever had a psycho, you know, uh, an experience? Have I suffered? You know, have I been depressed? Have I felt low? Have I worried when I shouldn't have worried? Yes. Have I heard things go bump in the night? Yes. Was it the pipe rattling? Yes. Did I make more of it? Yes. <laughs> you know, but it all comes down to the where I am at that moment. The same noise when you're with a group of mates, you don't even hear. So it's kind of, yeah, I tried to tap into that. That I think it was Andy Nyman who put it to me first that ghosts are within you and it, when he made his film ghost uh, stories and I realized that was the kind of eloquent way of saying what I had always felt and why I was always drawn to movies like The Shining and then made the film Triangle it's it's the same idea that the the, the house is you house is your mind. You brought up Triangle there and a lot of your early films are these cracking indie horrors so I remember watching Creep and Severance when I was really getting into the horror genre and also I watched Triangle last year and I thought it was actually one of the most effective ways to get across what it feels like to be in lockdown because it's this repetition going on. And while you might advance in your knowledge, the repetition is still happening. So yeah, yeah. I wondered how you felt returning to the horror genre because you took a, a, took a bit of a break and did some other yeah. kind of films. People say that it's like, it was the, 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 the break is no more a break than making four horror movies back to back was a plan. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> You know, I mean, I wrote Triangle after I'd made Creep. There was no severance. And so suddenly severance lands on you. And then I made Black. So it's kind of like it has been a break. It wasn't a, a planned break. But there again, making horror at the, when I started out wasn't planned. It was all I just found my way because of my love of the, the genre and the fact I'd watched so many. I grew up in the in the video nasties period. I heard this. I was was reading an article about a book called Cut that was in the press last week. And someone had quoted that me, Neil Marshall, Andy Nyman were all the same age as the writer. And we'd all grown up in this same bubble of you, of our teenage years watching slashers. And um, so I, the break I've had from it going, you know, the, the tangents of uh, in that time, I've actually carried on writing films. But what's nice about the break is that I've got, I've kind of gone and here's a break. But it, was, it wasn't a sort of, right, I'm not doing horror anymore. It was more like, right, I've just had a child. I want to write this Christmas movie. It's such a fun idea. And then I'm going to write this other movie that I wrote before I'd finished the horror phase called Detour. And before I knew it, yeah, the world had changed. TV had taken over. And, and actually, in around that time, I was kind of thinking, you know, I've, I've got some more ideas for horrors. Straight after Black Death, I wrote a werewolf movie that hasn't been made yet. So it's like... And when so this is more again this came to me and I realized that I missed making movies horror movies so I thought I'm going to get back into it and at the same time that I was working with the writers who wrote this 
I was also writing others. So I'm kind of now passionately coming back in and to, to do more because I, I like what it allows me to talk about. And, and I think the genre has become, since I began, it's got smarter and smarter and smarter. Films like Get Out, The Witch, Hereditary, these are exactly the movies I want to make, you know? I mean, I think Get Out's one of the greatest amalgamations of a great night out with a real political heart. It's, it's about something, you know, and it wears it on its sleeve, yet you also have a great time in the cinema. You know, yeah, horror is having a moment definitely where yeah, um, like it can somehow, you get these films that match the popcorn experience with everything that's happening around us can all kind of seep in and it's really... Plus, yeah, plus, you know, the days of making a two, three million pound romantic comedy are over. Romantic comedies are made by studios. Marvel makes Marvel films. Telly, I could work with much bigger crews, much more kit, all the stuff that I have been doing the last three years doing big TV. Uh, if you want to get in the movies and actually go to the cinema, horror is your best way because horror, you can still make them for relatively cheap and you can still fill cinemas. So in that way, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to start doing horrors again. Uh, your film's got a really great cast. It's got a load of really good British talent in it, like uh, Jessica Brown, Findlay and Sean Harris. They all have these key roles. Um, how was it working with this bunch of actors that you've got in this film? Well, I've worked with Jess and Sean before. Um, Jess is just phenomenal in the film, I think. I think she, uh, I, you know, I, I love that girl. And I think she's a brilliant actor and I want to hopefully work with her again soon. Uh, she's delightful and she... You don't have to say to Jess, Jess will just give you what you want. I mean, she will, she can flick from being terrified to absolutely crying her heart out to laughing all in the same shot, all done with, you know, great skill, but with also with a genuine, she, she, she digs that stuff up out of herself, you know. She's not just a technical actor who can do it. She is, but she also digs things up and gives you a surprise every time. And of course, working with Sean, who I've worked with once before in Creep, that was a great experience. Sean came to the role and said, "Like, I want to, you know, let's do something like Anthony Hopkins' Van Helsing. Let's let's create something colourful and flowery in this guy. You know, maybe he's a dancer and started throwing all these <laughs> ideas." Um, and, you know, and think about it from Sean's perspective. Since we've worked together, Sean has literally been to Hollywood and back. He's been in two, he's been in two um, Mission Impossible movies. He's been in a helicopter that Tom Cruise was flying. You know what I mean? And suddenly he's up in Yorkshire with me making this small film and, and really going for it. So, you know, and then John, John Lynch, I've worked with before, John Heffernan's fab. Yeah, it was great. It was a really lovely experience. Um, do you do you have a favourite ghost story? Do you have a favourite ghost movie or story at all? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm a big, I still, I'm a big fan of, I mean, I love Poltergeist and I still think it's one of the kind of, one of the better ones. I think I watched, the, <laughs> I, I must say, because of probably my upbringing, I'm much more, I much more lean into, um, Wolf Creek than I do most ghost stories. I 
only because a guy relentlessly following me with an axe scares me more than things that go bump in the night. But that said, what I love about this and what I love about The Shining or Shutter Island, these are for me are ghost stories. Uh, Shutter Island is a case in point. It's about this. It's about the head. It's about, it's not about, um, you know, so that's why I mentioned Poltergeist as a more traditional one. Poltergeist is a haunted house. It really is haunted. The Amityville horror really is haunted. I find, uh, yeah, I find films about, you know, Jacob's Ladder, I find more scary than than ghost stories in a sense. So that's what I've tried to bring into this, which is what, what the, the, the circular aspect of her starting to see scenes that you've seen before. This has happened before in this house. And for me, it's all about the echo of, you know, people turning against each other and the echo of, you know, eventually resulting in fascism and the whole kind of circle of that is is all hinted at in that it's all about we just keep going round in circles as like you said as a species we keep going round in circles the 1920s could be the 2020s for the some of the people that are in charge at the moment you know yeah. it's scary uh, all your films um all your horror films have been different subgenres. no one of them has seemed to be the same so like Creep is very different from Severance, which is different from Triangle, which is different from Black Death, which is different from The Banishing. Um, and I really appreciate, as, as, a, as a horror fan, I really appreciate someone who's going to make a load of different films. Uh, have you got any other kind of horror film you want to make it? Like you've mentioned. Yeah, no, I've written two. I've got two films coming soon. One is called Consecration, which is a kind of detective story that becomes another, uh, becomes a... Um, you know, a story about the devil slash witches. And uh, I've always, you know, again, it's all films from my, my past. I've always loved Angel Heart, you know, so something along, along those lines. And then I've also done a, I've written a slasher movie called The Judas Goat, which is a kind of set in England film. So <laughs> they're all kind of like, one day you'll go, oh, they're actually, they're all the same. They're all in different genres, but they're all about people going around in circles. <laughs> I, I'm trying not to do that, but the themes that I find interesting, I still find interesting. And, and yeah, I mean, I, when, did you find that when you watch films, you go back to them, you watch 2001 when you're 13, and you watch it again when you're 25, then you watch it when you're 45, and you go, fuck, I haven't even scratched on the surface of how brilliant that film is, what he's doing there. Uh, so, I first saw The Shining, for example, that I was disappointed yeah. it was the slasher, and then I, every time I watch it, it gets more and more interesting and scarier right. and yeah, and yeah, toxic. You can, and the case and, and the film to go and watch again is Eyes Wide Shut because I actually that's the I, I actually like that at the time, and that film keeps getting better and better when you watch it. It's this, it's the same. Kubrick is the greatest. Uh, my final question for you is is what horror gems you've be, have you been watching lately so what horror films have jumped out for you that you've been watching of yeah late? Uh, the, yeah the witch um i really loved I, as i said before get out i just saw a film which i really liked i can't remember the name of it it's a strange name i think it's an indonesian film um oh god impetigor is that the name of it is that on shudder it is on Shudder, yeah. Yeah, I think I think it's in Petticle. I haven't watched it. I have Shudder, but I haven't watched it yet. It's uh, yeah, I really liked it. Yeah, here we go. 
<laughs> Impetigore. There's no you can see it's that yeah. one. That's the last horror I watched that I really enjoy. I, I, I tell you what I liked about it is I like um I, and I, I the films I don't like, I don't want to name them, but I, is when you really know with horror exactly what's gonna fucking happen and you know exactly how it's gonna play out and how contrived it'll be, and however good it is, how contrived it'll be. That's what I don't like. I would rather watch, and I mentioned this to the previous guy, I would rather watch Abel Ferrara's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, which isn't a great movie, but has the single greatest scene in it ever, which is when um, uh, Meg Tilly is basically, her husband runs down and says, quick, we gotta go, we gotta run. And she says, where are you gonna go, John? Where are you gonna run? Where are you gonna hide? She stands there with her hand doing this, and it's literally one of the scariest scenes ever. I love the chaos of what Abel Ferrara does in that film. And I prefer filmmakers that don't give it to you on a platter, that let films go off at tangents. And, and you know, and Wolf Creek scared the shit out of me when I saw that. I think it's still to this day, that's probably the only film that scared me in the cinema actually while I was watching it. You know, it's kind of, it really affected me. And that's probably because I grew up watching slashes. Um, do, you, um, do you like your horror to be a bit nasty? Because Wolf Creek is... Nasty. Kind of, yeah, kind of. Yeah, creep is nasty. I mean, creep is like, you know, I look at creep now and I'm kind of like, it's like a, you know, my a, the guy who made that's not the guy I'm mad. It's like, that was a kind of like, let's make a slasher. Um, I wouldn't, I think, I, I think things are far more twisted now when things aren't happening, you know, like uh, I remember in audition when you just got a bag in the corner of the room with somebody in it that moves. I think that these are the things I find. Yeah. I mean, there's a ghost story. That's a that's not a ghost story. It's about that's about a really bad date. <laughs> really wrong. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So the passion has remained, and I'm I'm gonna. This is the first of a of a spate. So hopefully we'll speak again soon when we uh, the next one. So hopefully. Well, I mean, I I had a lot of fun with the band. The band. Yeah, I thought you it was questions. I really enjoyed this. Really good atmospheric but, fun. Oh good, that's great. Over there is bedroom, that is the living room, and this is the dining room. What's this room? You're not to go there. You're forbidden. So if that sounds like a release you want to go off and watch, The Banishing is out on digital platforms on March the 26th, and I had fun with it. I thought it was a pretty effective ghost story. And I think it might be worth your time. I have some fun with it. I saw it at Fright Fest uh, last year as well. I really liked it. So, yeah, um, I, I certainly recommend it too. There we go. A fairly strong horror for you to go watch, maybe instead of the new wrong turn. <laughs> Next up, we've got our news story. So the stories that have jumped out for us and caught our eye. Vincent, you're going to go first at this, aren't you? Indeed. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to start broad and then narrow it down a bit. Um, the news I'm going to talk about are the BAFTA nominations that were announced on the 9th of March. Uh, we're recording this a couple of days after. Now, um, it's an interesting range of films that have been nominated, um, many of which I have not seen because you know, quite a lot have not yet been released. For instance, of the five best film nominees, the only one I have seen is The Trial of the Chicago 7. But I am excited to see all of them. Now, um, I will. Uh, there is an element of um, horror to talk about in regards to the BAFTA nominations. Before I get to that, one of the key um, talking points around the nominations has been a really pleasing diversity. There are four women up for 
the award for best director. And there are out of the out of the um, twenty four um, acting nominations, sixteen of them are people of color. Now this is a big shift um, after recent years where um, awards like the Oscars, the BAFTAs, the Golden Globes have been so terribly white. And what I say the last few years, they've been terribly white their entire history. Um, in the case of these BAFTA nominations, the greater diversity um, may be at least partly due to BAFTA changing its rules. Um, there's been a new long list round of voting and the, exp- and the category of outstanding British film was expanded to 10 nominees. In addition, the acting categories, were all ex- as well as directing, were all expanded to six nominees in an attempt to um, allow greater diversity. Now, this seems to have worked. However, I would suggest, and I don't think I'm alone in this, that the pandemic has also had an effect. What we've seen with films um, being pr- produced, but also released in the past year, have been more workers, perhaps, who do not fit in the traditional mould, more productions that don't fit in the traditional mould. The major films with larger productions are typically handled by the establishment figures of white men. And these have been delayed, especially in terms of their release. Um, they've They've been completed and so on, but they're being pushed back until they can have a wide cinema release. The most obvious casualty being um, No Time to Die, which has been pushed back at least three times. Now, with that in mind, does that mean next year, uh, or maybe even later this year, well, sorry, next year, future award seasons, will we see a return to previous patterns? We shall see. And next week, the Oscar nominations will be announced, and it will be very interesting, I think, to see, as on the 15th of March, the Oscar nominations will be announced, and it will be very interesting to see, is there a similar diversity there? I certainly hope so. Now, specifically, in relation to horror fans, um, in the BAFTA nominations, I want to give a particular shout out to His House and St. Maud. Now, I'm yet to see St. Maud, but I will do soon. It is on my um, order list, so it will be coming through before too long. But His House was one of my top films of last year. I absolutely loved it, and I've spoken about it before. Both of these are nominated for Outstanding British Film, as well as Outstanding Debut by a British writer, director, or producer. So huge applause. Come on, gents. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, huge applause to Remy Weeks for His House and to Rose Glass and Oliver Kassman for St. Maud. In addition, Wunmi Musaku is from His House is up for Best Actress. And these nominations are really encouraging because horror rarely gets awards attention. And how much sweeter is it that these are not films from the standard white male perspective? St. Maud is a film by women about women, and His House takes the experiences of immigrants and asylum seekers and uses the horror genre to make these experiences completely accessible for audiences without ever being preachy. Now, I am really happy with these nominations, and I look forward to seeing the films themselves, as well as the awards presented on the 11th of April. And I will also add that if anyone out there wants to accuse these nominations as political correctness gone mad or rewarding wokeness over quality, Please come and fight me on Twitter. I am here for it. His house is phenomenal, and it is amazing that they've raised that one up. And am I right in thinking that Moffat Clark is up for Best Actress for Saint Maud? If she is, she's right on that. Hang on, I have the list here. Uh, No, she isn't actually. Ah, then I'm wrong. But anyway, the nominations they've got are very worthy. It's very nice that 
horror is got a place. I'm also excited that I believe Riz Ahmed and Daniel Kalua are both up for awards. That's correct. And as are, I would... Chad, as are Chadwick Boseman in his final role and um, where is she? And Alfred Woodard as well. Yeah, so there's some really great nominations. There's some stuff that's been ignored by other award ceremonies. My only thing with this is that I haven't seen a lot of the big films because of the nature of this year, but it just gets me more and more excited to watch something like Promising Young Women or Sound of Metal or any or Judas and the Black Jesus because, Lord, I want to watch all those films. I want to watch all these award films. Give them to me now. So I'm excited that horror is there and I'm excited that it is a more representative bunch of nominees than the usual pretty much all white and all male director nominations and all white uh, actor nominations. I can't tell if we're being tokenistic as three white guys um, talking about diversity, but I guess we're exactly, you know, it's it's um, it's for important for everyone to talk about. Yeah, and, and my view is always that I don't, I I just want a range of voices in cinema. I just want cinema to be the most exciting place it can be. And if it's just white people called David making films, no offense to some of the great directors, it's kind of boring. Cronenberg. And like, all right, I love Fincher, I love Cronenberg, and Lynch confuses me. But um, yeah. I, Anyone I'm, who's not confused by David Lynch, I do not trust. <laughs> <laughs> it's especially quite good that Alfred Woodard got the nomination because Clemency came out in the US last year and was denied any Oscar nominations or big awards contenders. And I believe it came out early 2020 in the UK, so it's really built up that buzz and sustained it to get into the BAFTA nominations, which is quite excellent. Indeed. And given the history of the BAFTAs where Denzel Washington has never won, I'm not sure if he's been properly nominated for an ACT award by the BAFTAs. The BAFTAs have a have a have their own disappointing history of nominations. This is, as long as it continues, a really positive step. Uh, James, what is your news story? My news story, in a way, circles back to my last recommendation where I mentioned the late director, George A. Romero. Now, he may have died almost four years ago, but death has not stopped this director's output because it's been announced that George A. Romero's lost film entitled The Amusement Park will be arriving on Shudder later this summer. Now, what is The Amusement Park, you ask? How was it lost? Well, back in 1973, before he made Dawn of the Dead, back when he was in the realms of Season of the Witch and the Crazies, Romero was asked by a Pittsburgh-based organisation called the Lutheran Services to shoot something for them, something which talked about the way society discriminates against the elderly. And Romero was very eager to work at this point, so he agreed to do it. But the film he delivered appalled the Lutherans so much that they refused to release it. And Romero just didn't want to fight that battle, so he just moved on and, and moved on to the next thing. Now, that lost film has now been restored, and we'll finally see the light of day in 4K definition, which is quite amazing. 
that films can be almost 50 years lost and still turn up. Maybe one day we'll get that Event Horizon director's cut we've all been clamoring for. The blood orgy sequence. But (laughs) this may not be the end of the story, because there are reports about around 40 to 50 unmade scripts by Romero lurking in his vault. So, you know, it's appropriate that this director was best known for his iconic take on zombies. It's that... appropriate that death may not be the end for him (laughs) nicely put now i definitely watched another romero and it's very exciting that this film is seeing the light of day and and um also seems a subject matter that really isn't ever that explored in cinema so i'm i'm all for it and also moves nicely into my news pick which is the release of Zack snyder's justice league which you know, never thought it would happen, but here we are. We are, as we record this, a week away from it being released. It's being released uh, <clears throat> here and in America on March the 18th. Here it will be on Now TV, and it is the four-hour recut, reshot, re-scored, re-jigged, re-whatever of the Justice League that came out a few years ago and was not that much liked. And yeah, so it is this new version of... Zack Snyder's Justice League that will be significantly longer and significantly more Snydery, uh, and it is the culmination of a fan campaign that, shall we say, is questionable. I've had some practices online that I think we can all agree have been fucking terrible, um, but it also it ties into um, suicide prevention charity, so it's a really complicated picture behind the scenes of this film and i want to see what it is i don't know if it will fix it it reminds me of when i was at university we watched the two versions of the exorcist prequel because we were doing a term on paul schrader as a director i mean it's probably too much paul schrader for anyone and the truth is that paul schrader's version was boring rennie harlan's version was naff so we watched these two versions of the Exodus prequel that told the same story, and the end conclusion was neither were that good. So I'm not sure if this will fix Justice League. I didn't hate Justice League. I had enough fun of it. I thought it was a perfectly serviceable film that I haven't thought about much since I watched. But other people have. So while this is not a horror film, it is interesting that this genre picture is going to get a release. and. I will be sitting down for all four hours of Zack Snyder's Justice League just so I can know if it was all worth all of the fuss, all of the aggro, all of the abuse that's been thrown at various people. Mm, it's certainly very, uh, it, it is quite a torturous production history that that film has had. Um, and especially, and it's interesting that it's coming out, um, that we're getting the Snyder Cut now after the um, release of accusations against um, Joss Whedon, who kind of, took over Justice League when Snyder had to leave. Um, and now, you know, Joss Whedon is pretty much persona non grata. Um, and he used to be quite the darling. And now Snyder has never been a darling. Um, and I would be kind of surprised if this, uh, if his, in inverted commas, version of Justice League somehow makes him any kind of like uh, revered as some kind of genius. I'd be you know, very surprised. However, I think you know, it is an interesting kind of... Um, it, it, I think it's an interesting development in, in the narrative and that we will now have these two 
versions of uh, Justice League and can look at them. Because, I mean, I remember I didn't hate the um, theatrical release of uh, Justice League either. However, I did feel it was very unbalanced between the script often sounded quite um, snappy and witty, whereas the direction often felt quite snidery, very lead, um, lumpen and portentous. So, you know, maybe it will warrant, it will benefit from having a four-hour running time. Um, that said, the last time I saw an auteurs-type movie of that sort of length, it was The Irishman, and I did remember thinking, yeah, this could have been a nice miniseries. <laughs> so we shall see, we shall see. Oh, when it comes to Snyder, I'll admit, I've tried his stuff, I've gone in with an open mind, and apart from his Dawn of the Dead film, I haven't liked what he's done, especially with his superhero stuff. I tried both versions of his Watchmen film, I've... Oh, my God, his BBS was something. <laughs> but you know what? It's... I'm. Will I like this? I don't know. But it's too interesting to not go in with an open mind to see what Justice League is like with a singular vision going in, all four hours of it. And after the torturous ordeal that happened on set, especially for Paul Ray Fisher, if I'd like to say, fuck you, Joss Whedon, I'd sooner take Snyder's version over you, you utter dickhead. I'll second that. Yeah, and I don't need Josh Whedon. Josh? Josh? How I, how I say his fucking name? I don't need him anywhere near this anymore. Um, uh, I kind of want to read the book, though, of this. I kind of want to read the book that is the complete history of this, because, so, for my other podcast, I've been watching uh, so I watched Man of Steel, I watched Batman vs Superman, I'm going to watch six hours of Justice League in the next week or so, which is a lot of Justice League, because I'm going I'm to watch both versions. There's leagues and, of justice here. <laughs> and and I, I find it interesting that they handed over, Warner Brothers handed over the DC Universe to one person's vision, and and they got sort of two or three films in before they decided this was too much. And I, I find it really interesting that they've now gone back to the world because there are enough fans. And so I, I just want to see what this is. I want to see what it's like. I, I as I say, I don't think it'll fix the issues that are with Justice League, but it will give a singular voice to at least three of the Snyder DC films that exist. I have turned the worlds to dust. All of existence shall be mine. So lastly, as we've had a stalwart of the British indie horror scene, I thought I'd test my co-host's knowledge of British horror of the last 20 years with a quiz! Hey! Oh, shit! So, chaps, get your pens, your paper, your pencils, whatever. People at home, you can play along. It's 10 questions. Some of them are right. Some of them will be a bit trickier, maybe. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. How many questions? 10. Oh, boy. So, first up, Queen's Don't Stop Me Now plays a prominent role in which horror comedy? Number two, Andy Nyman is responsible for which play turned film? Who is the future X-Man whose visit to Eden Lake is short-lived? Which early noughties cast features Naomi Harris, Brendan Gleeson and Christopher Eccleston? So which film has that cast? 
who directed Barbarian Sound Studio and In Fabric. The National Tramway Museum features in which film? Four questions left. What event is Alice Lowe's character seeking vengeance for in Prevenge? Number eight. Which film includes characters such as The Priest, The Librarian and The MP? The penultimate question. Who wrote the novella that The Woman in Black is based on? And finally, Ross Noble plays an undead clown in which slasher? So I won't ask you for your answers, but I will ask you to have a guess at how many you got right. I think I got five. Okay, James? I'm going to be a bit up myself and say eight. Five or eight, who will be right? So let's have those answers. So Queen's Don't Stop Me Now is in Shaun of the Dead. It's a great bit in the pub where they are beating up a zombie. Andy Nyman is responsible for Ghost Stories, which I have seen both the film and the stage version, and it scared me both times. Michael Fassbender's visit to Eden Lake is short-lived. He is the X-Man. 28 Days Later features Naomi Harris, Brendan Gleeson and Christopher Eccleston. The wonderful Peter Strickland directed Barbarian Sound Studio and In Fabric and makes just the most intoxicatingly strange films. Oh yeah. The National Tramway Museum is of course in Sightseers. In Prevenge, Alice Slow's character is getting revenge for her partner's death in a climbing accident, so she is killing off all of his fellow party who went climbing with him. How detailed does our answer have to be for that one? Uh, what is your answer? Partner's death. Half point. Sure. Better than mine. <laughs> Kill List features the priest, the, the librarian, and the MP. Those are all the targets on the Kill List. Susan Hill wrote The Woman in Black. And finally, Ross Noble plays Stitches, the undead clown in that slasher. A bit of an odd film. So... James, how did you do? Eight and a half. Ooh. And Vincent? I was spot on. I got five. It uh, mm. kind of suggested it was interesting. I got the first five and was like, yes, I know that one. I know that one. I know that one. <laughs> then we got to question six and I was like, Ugh. yeah, it didn't, it didn't come back to me. Oh, well. It makes me want to revisit British Horror of the last 20 years, right, and it's quits. Because I didn't include a question on The Cottage, which I really want to watch again. It's The the Cottage is this strange horror where Andy Serkis and... Oh, God, what's his name? Uh, Reese Shearsmith end up in a cottage. They're criminals. They kidnap someone. They end up in a cottage. And there's someone very bad there who starts killing people off. It's great. Ooh, so they effectively go to the cottage in the woods. Pretty much, pretty much. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> so there you have it. There's our recommendations. We've had an interview for you. There's a quiz for you to take part of. Haven't we given you a lot this month? We are most generous. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it's goodbye from... I am at RoddersJ04 on Twitter and Letterboxd. And my reviews can be found at thereviewingrodders.co.uk. Check it out. Fabulous. And then there's Vincent, who you can find me on Twitter at Dr. Gain. That's D-R-G-A-I-N-E. 
Um, you can also find my reviews on Vincent's Views, um, my blog, as well as the um, Snakebite Horror and the Critical Movie Critics, where you can read a fuller version of my review of Wrong Turn. Watch out for inbred cannibals and the counterculture folk with great hair. One bunch will eat you, the others will bore you. And I am Russell, and you can find me on Twitter, Russ Loves Movies, and that's where I post anything I write and whatever I watch and all other kind of musings. And you can find my podcast, Not Just For Kids, which is where we get your podcasts, and it is a dive through the family films throughout the ages. We're currently taking a short break, but we'll be back at the end of the month with our series on Studio Ghibli, and those are some incredible films. So you should join us to listen about all those amazing films. We'll be back next month with even more recommendations. Go off and watch all those incredible things, read those incredible books, and just have a fabulous time. And maybe next time we talk, things will be just that much better and we'll be just that much further away from this stupid lockdown. <laughs>